We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come hear about ways experts say we can best empower these families and let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos. And today, my guest is Ella Kahlo. Ella is a lawyer who has always advocated for the rights of marginalized groups. She believes everyone has the capacity for self-determination and defends people's rights to be empowered and live their lives as they see fit. We started our conversation with me sharing the impact Ella has had on me after I became a parent with a disability myself. Enjoy. And don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. I'm very excited to have Ella Kello here with us today because um, every time I've met Ella, she impressed me by the respect that she has for every parent. And to me, that was very meaningful because in, in my line of work, Certainly, respect and dignity was important. Um, and so recognizing that in someone else was equally sort of beautiful, I guess, in a way. But it was even more important to me when I became a parent with a disability and the kindness and the compassion and the hope that Ella gave me was very uh, extremely meaningful. And I will forever be thankful to her for that. So thank you, Ella, for um, accepting to be here with me today to talk about parenting and disability. I'm very excited about the time that we're going to spend together. Oh, thank you so much. That was That's lovely to hear, and I really appreciate those kind words. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Excellent. So Ella, um, at first, I wanted to know a little bit more about what led you to doing this kind of work and working with parents with disability. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it's interesting because my um, background and my area of interest really was on Indian Child Welfare Act law. Um, I uh, focused on, uh, I majored in social welfare and Native American studies undergraduate. Um, you know, I, I come out of the, the Native community and I was really interested in law school um, in Indian Child Welfare Act law, um, for people who might not know, those that was a, a piece, of, a large piece of remedial legislation uh, passed in the United States in the 1970s to try to address and remedy um, the uh, wholesale removal of uh, Native, Indigenous, tribal children in the United States that had occurred through um, targeted federal programs and, um, and just generally through child welfare in the U.S. over decades and decades. Um, and I, I really wasn't focused too much on disability generally. Um, I I did grow up in a family with a, a grandfather who was um, significantly hearing impaired. Uh, he had uh, lost his hearing in, in World War II. Um, and so I had grown up as a child with a disabled adult that I utterly adored. And there were six of us grandkids. We all adored him. Uh, but I, I didn't really think about disability or parenting um, 
with a disability until I finished law school. And um, I, I wanted to spend a few years getting training in a firm. And so I had done that. It was in my third year. And I was looking for a, a different position, something back doing the type of work I wanted to do, social justice work with law. And I saw an advertisement from Through the Looking Glass, which was a um, very old independent living movement, uh, grassroots NGO in Berkeley that focused on a non pathologizing family interventions and support for disabled parents um, and children, families where they're both often. Um, and they were looking for an attorney to join them and uh, create a legal program. Uh, they were designated at that time and, and funded as the National Center for Parents with Disabilities and their children. And so that was uh, interesting to me. It was a situation of um, doing some research and going, how well, you know, I might not know the words, but I can hum the tune to this. Like, I understand the idea of taking uh, a people and uh, exploiting and excluding and segregating them and then denying them the right to familial integrity, taking their children or preventing them from having children from the native context um, and uh, realize that many of the same dynamics were in place in the native for the, for the disabled community. And so I came in and I started a legal program that did uh, three things generally. One was that we provided uh, free uh, legal technical assistance to parents and parenting relatives with disabilities across the nation when they were facing uh, loss of custody based in, at least in part on their disability in any of the systems that remove children. So either the private family court system, the public dependency court system um, or the guardianship system where you can lose uh, custody of your child to a guardianship. And um, the other thing that we, the other two things that we did were, uh, were to provide uh, technical assistance to stakeholders seeking to create legislation or policy in their state to protect these families. And the third um, was to conduct research um, into the systems where this dynamic was taking place. So the child welfare system um, and the dependency court system where the, the legal side is managed of child welfare cases. Um, so in doing that work, um, you know, it all sort of becomes enmeshed in that you're using the research to support the legislation and policy, you're talking to parents to figure out what needs to be researched, you're providing technical assistance to parents by making sure everyone's aware of legislation and policy that exists that could be helpful or useful or not. So we published uh, many articles and created many guides um, for parents and their counsel, um, when they had counsel, we um, gathered uh, data on uh, so we could find trends in what happened with parents. And we really focused on the intersectional nature of the population. Um, child welfare particularly is a poor people system and you find many groups that are have been um, negatively racialized as well as pathologized in other ways. Very few people that hold what Wolfson would call um, socially valorized roles 
in our society. Um, so, you know, we really wanted to hear from those who are multiply excluded from the opportunity to have families in the United States. A big job. Yeah, it um, it kind of just kept snowballing, getting bigger and bigger. I, I began there in um, 2004. And, you know, the reason that they had wanted my position in this program that we developed, um, where I, I was legal director, was because, as I said, through the looking glass was a, a grassroots, old school Berkeley uh, independent living movement program. A lot of the same people that had, you know, worked in developing the first CIL and had been um, in the same group of people as, you know, Judith Human and Ed Roberts and integrating schools and other spaces. Um, and, and they, you know, really were a place that disabled people went to look for help. So they began after deinstitutionalization when disabled people then had both the social opportunity and the physical capacity because they weren't just being outright sterilized or institutionalized, when they had the opportunity to become parents, then the other side of that eugenics coin of pr having prevented them from being parents was all of these laws that developed to remove children um, on the basis of disability along with the other typical factors, which are, which are not identity factors, which are usually behavioral factors. And so they were like overwhelmed because they were just constantly getting calls from all over the country of people going, they're taking my kids, you have to help me. They're taking my kids, you have to help me. They had worked with um, these, the uh, NICL, the, the National Independent Living Center um, chapter in Idaho, um, to do a project to create what is still the most comprehensive legislation protecting parents with disabilities and their kids. Um, and the reason that came about in Idaho was because they were doing listening sessions, the you know, independent living centers do listening sessions in their states and asking, you know, what, what are the biggest issues we should be taking up in the next year? And over and over, people said, they're taking our children. You have to do something to help us. So they had gone from being kind of overwhelmed, providing individualized technical assistance and support about what clinical services are appropriate in these circumstances, what um, are the fallacies, misconceptions, or myths about these parents uh, and their children, and things like that to being asked to contribute to creating legislation and policy on a statewide level and realize that they they needed to have someone with a legal background to own those. And then we just really had deficits in the narrative around, well, how many of these parents are there now? How many in the systems that we're looking at, how much of that system is comprised of this population of families you couldn't really talk about it validly without answering some of those questions. And so we knew we'd have to do um, extensive research as well. I love in your story how one, you know, it started like grassroots. So it's really sort of like coming from parents themselves yeah. and sort of oh, like yeah. saying, you know, like, no, we need help with this. And, and to have like an organization to say, yes, we're going to tackle this and we're going to create this position And we're right. going to find somebody who's, you know, socially uh, justice driven um, with mm -hmm. a legal background to be able to tackle this. And I find that yeah. very beautiful in terms of how all of this came came about. 
yeah. very powerful, actually. Yeah, it was you know interesting too because the organization itself uh, contained many parents with disabilities and and many people that um, owned and lived uh, multiple identities. You know, many LGBTQIA. Um, parents with disabilities, you know, working in this field. So like Corbett O'Toole and her partner were closely associated with it and her partner of many years worked there. Um, uh, Judy Rogers, who wrote The Disabled Woman's Guide to Pregnancy and was herself um, a wheelchair using parent, um, was there as an employee and, you know, for 30 years or something, like one of the founders of it. Um, the founder herself, um, Megan, um, she was married to a man, Hal um, Kirschbaum, who himself had MS and, um, and, and went through the experience of being diagnosed with MS and, um, and having his MS progress throughout the time that they were parents. So while they were both therapists and a lot of what they had started the agency to do was to provide non-pathologizing family systems, child development-based interventions with families, right? Very Bay Area, very San Francisco State, early childhood development, all of that stuff from the 70s and 80s. Um, while that had been their focus, um, it also became a, a personal thing for them because, right, because he he was a person with a mask. So yeah, and, you know, so lots of, of people of color working there, um, lots of, of queer people working there and disabled people working there. So like my experience working in the disability community was never a disability rights for disabled people. We do X. It was always disability justice and it was always grassroots. And, um, I, you know, peopled and run by disabled people and their families. So it was, it was different. As I went out into the world, I found out how different that was. I didn't know that I'm from this area too. So, you know, you grow up with everybody's movements and I'm from the Bay area. So you grew, you know, we grew up with, you know, the black power movement and the feminist movement and the gay movement and, um, and the disability movement. And, I was used to seeing kids being zoomed around on their parents' wheelchairs and, you know, seeing people, um, knowing people whose parents were blind or were deaf. Um, but I didn't realize how political and how politicized it was and what that represented as a response to this hegemony of eugenicism in America until I went into the field as a professional. Wow. There's like so many things, like it's mind blowing. Right now, you're giving me sort of a history lesson, which I'm so <laughs> thankful and grateful because <laughs> I'm like, and and you're naming names that I that I know, and some of them I've mm -hmm. read, you know, their work, but you're giving yeah. me like a, a another layer as to who they were, uh, who they are as as people, yeah. and like what led them to probably sort of doing the work that they did that I've read, yeah. that I cited, that I, you know, sort of see as, as, as mentors in a way, but you're giving me that extra mm -hmm. layer, which is incredible. And I was getting also emotional because, mm -hmm. um, you know, after my accident, becoming a mom on wheels was not necessarily something that I wanted to, that I asked mm -hmm. for, obviously. Um, right. And I was looking for sort of those people that came before me who were parents who could have told me like, yeah, you can do it, you know, like yeah, it's feasible. Yeah. You just have to be a right? little like, creative. 
Yeah, like where's I, I know that one of the the things that I really loved that we did while we were there, because all kinds of like trippy, interesting projects happened at that place. And um, you know, one of them was a, a guide for blind parents that was done by a blind a blind mom who had actually been a blind mom of twins. And of like, that's mind-blowing. If like twins themselves, parenting twins is mind-blowing. But we go, wow, how do you do that? Right. Um, but she had all of these stories and tips and tricks and how-tos and things that were from blind parents in the community. And once you get involved in the community, you know that, you know, blind parents, like the blind community, there's just tons and tons and tons of blind parented families, right? Um, But, you know, it was, I thought that was so amazing because I was like, God, if I was a new blind mom, oh, that would have been like my Bible, you know? But I, I think there's a real need for collections just of the what was your experience? What was that like for parents who, yeah, are either parenting, even if they've had their disability their whole lives, entering that parenting world, or for people who are newly disabled as parents? Um, I, I think that that's a real that's a real need. I hope somebody somebody does that. Yeah, yeah. I'll say like you know the one the one book that that I think kind of goes there to a degree if people are interested is um, there's a book called Mothers with Disabilities that was published about, I don't know, six years ago or something. And I did an, uh, a chapter of it and um, uh, Paul Preston, Dr. Paul Preston, who, who was a CODA and a cultural doctor of cultural anthropology and focused on parents with deafness, um, parenting with deafness. Uh, he did a chapter and talking about research they had done using very conservative measures of child well-being for young adults um, and showing that children of, of uh, disabled parents fare just as well as anyone else when using that measure. Um, but that's a great book that, that looks at it. You know, I'm always, I forget sometimes that there are other stories in that book because I'm, I do legal and my article was, I think, uh, motherhood and madness in the American courts or something. And it was looking at court cases. Um, but there are other stories in there as well, but there's, there's a need for so much more. Yeah. And you know that because my work, um, involves, all disabilities, um, because coming at it from an attorney, I'm looking at, well, what does the Americans with Disabilities Act protect? And if you're protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act, then you fell within the scope of my work. Um, You know, I was really able to hear from many different communities about the challenges and to see um, how the experience of parenting was different when you have a visible versus an invisible disability, what your vulnerability to social judgment is and um, how you can more quickly end up in systems um, that incarcerate children like child welfare systems when you have um, apparent disabilities Um you know, and, and what those experiences are if you have a disability that's more highly pathologized than others, uh, you know, mental illness being more pathologized, say, than someone who has vision impairment. Um, there were, you know, there are differences in how those communities experience parenting. Um, and then when you include, you know, race and ethnicity, um, uh, gender issues, uh, uh, issues of gender identity and sexuality, you know, you can really have it. You just see that it's this incredibly human area with this incredible range of diversity in the experience of these parents and what they mean, what they experience, both positively and negatively. 
It's not just like your personal experience. This is actually some of the research that you've done that actually sort yes. of gives you that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And two articles mm -hmm. that you um, sort of suggested that we talk about today actually talk about sort of intersectionality and the Indian Child Welfare Act, if I'm mm -hmm. correct, yeah. and then talks about the prevalence and, and everything that you talked about, sort of having more um, parents with psychiatric illness or, or diagnosed uh, mm -hmm. as such in child welfare. So do you want to sort of like talk a little bit about the research and, and tying in what you've been saying yeah. thus far? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, I'll start talking a little about prevalence, if that's okay, yes. the, the prevalence question. So, you know, in order to get any action, right, especially in, in countries like ours, those large countries, um, you really have to be able to say the, why should I care piece? And sadly, especially when your work is for pathologized, non-valorized communities, Um, you need to be able to talk about numbers and impact on systems. And so one of the, the main things that we did was look at a couple of different, we took a couple of different methodologies to try to establish some sort of baseline around how much our child welfare systems comprised of parents with disabilities and their kids. We, we wanted to know that because I felt that similar to our um, American penal system, that what we would find is that these were largely disability serving institutions that um, in the same way that research had come out in the 2000 teens, early 2000 teens, talking about these exceedingly high over half of the populations in our um, prison systems uh, where people with mental health involvement, that we would find high levels um, of disability in these systems of uh, child welfare systems. Um, but we didn't have really a way to, to prove that. Um, there had been one study in Boston right after the passage of the ADA to try to um, establish prevalence. And um, they had, you know, gone in and looked through a, um, a randomly selected uh, number of uh, child welfare files looking for um, evidence that, that families were disabled and then extrapolated from that. And this had also been undertaken by Booth and Booth um, in, in England. And, you know, so we thought, okay, we, we want to do that. We want to, we really want to be looking at some actual files. And then we took um, the National Child Abuse um, data set, the NCANS data set, Uh, which is just a large data set around um, child abuse and neglect in the United States. And they collect a multitude of demographics about the children. Um, and it's collected from each state. And each state is bringing it up from localities where they've designated child welfare entities to do this work. And so we, we wanted to look at that and see what we could find about um, if there was disability and caretakers. And We uh, we found it in both, uh, far more than anyone expected, really. So for the, um, the child welfare case reviews, which are extremely difficult to do because child welfare cases and their filings don't fall under FOIA or like Open Government Act, Sunshine Laws, things like that. It's very difficult. You have to get agreements from child welfare to give you access to their files. You have to go there, typically, to um, as far as I know, always, to review them. So we, we chose the largest urban system, Los Angeles, um, a small rural system in Texas, and then a suburban um, center in Minnesota to, to get sort of a range of geographies and um, 
uh, population demographic uh, scopes and um, populations. It was interesting in the beginning asking Los Angeles, like, how many people do you think you'll have? And they said, oh, I don't think we have hardly any. And then I I remember someone going, oh, wait, do you mean like, and I think they used a a term like, you know, delayed or something, meaning intellectual disability or developmental disability. Do you mean those people too? I said, yeah. And they go, oh, honey, that's every other case. And I thought, okay, so it's somewhere between nothing and every other case. This is going to be interesting, right? Um, so th- we requested, you know, that we gave them an explanation of what we were doing and um, and went down and went through the cases and went through, you know, I think, oh gosh, I forget how many, 150 case files. Some of the case files had eight or nine, 10 files within it. It was, it was several of us over many, many, many days, uh, many days, and Uh, what we were looking for was if there was a formal designation of the parent as disabled. So either it was pled by the system that the parent was disabled and that was a basis for removal or concern. Um, There was a doctor, there was doctor's uh, documentation, medical documentation, um, or first responder or medical documentation. Um, So people being what we call 5150 in California, taken in for psychiatric observation, um, and, and so we were really looking for as, as formal as we could find. And then, um, you know, we, re- we replicated that at each place. And in Los Angeles, I think it was well over 30% of the population just formally identified. We don't even know how many people have it, but it wasn't the mainstay of their case to the point that it was pled or there was documentation on it. Um, and I have to note that one of my areas of, of deepest focus is on uh, the, the intersection of Indian Child Welfare Act and um, disability, because Native people, as in most colonized nations, including Canada, um, have the highest levels of disability. Um, they did not provide us with their equal court documents. And they also did not give us their deaf court documents. They didn't even tell us they had a deaf court till we began. So that doesn't include deaf families and it doesn't include Native people. Um, I was very frustrated with that because they knew that our model would have required those and wanted those. Um, So that's even um, lower than we expect it probably really is. Um, In Texas, similarly, very high numbers and, and, you know, I think around the same amount. In Minnesota, the entity that we were working with happened to have I think a grant at the time for them to do mental health screening when parents entered their system. Because you have to realize they don't screen for this. They don't collect data on disability, right? Unless it's problematic, unless it's problem sanitized, they're not collecting it, which is interesting from a bioinformatics point of view of like, what do you want to know? Because if you know people have a disability in the United States and you're a public system, you must provide them ADA rights, right? So why would you want to know that if your concern was austerity and the provision of, uh, you know, services on a, on a cost-based basis, you're trying to keep them low. Um, so they don't collect this. But in Minnesota, they had this grant to do, you know, mental health screening. And it was over 60% where there was mental health screening. So we can imagine that if there was um, a proper valid intake asking people, um, and screening people that we'd see much higher numbers even than we saw in LA and Texas. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was the first one. And, you know, we, we did that research and published it, um, 
in in late 2010s, but we had the data before publishing for a couple of years and we're using it, you know, and it, it was extremely helpful um, to move legislation and policy in a few places. Um, of course, you know, my work was national because our funding was national. But as you know, the way I met you is that we also did international work, you know, hooking up with researchers that were doing the same type of work through um you know, IACID, International Association for Scientific Study of Intellectual Disability. And also I worked with uh, um, the Nordic Network on Disability Research. So, um, you know, it was good to be able to talk about what does our population look like? What are the numbers we're seeing when we're going to talk with people in other countries um, in order to try to figure out what types of interventions would be useful? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was really the first step was, you know, for us early on is going, we know we need some numbers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting because we all say we need numbers and we all say, mm-hmm. despite the, the, the few numbers that we already have, we, we keep needing sort of more numbers because it's sort of like we need yeah. to justify all the time sort of why right. we're doing this work and why services or the system actually, right. because it's not really about services. I think it's larger mm-hmm. than that. It's systemic you know, reorganization around yeah. how we're we're just supporting families as a general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if 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 you want, as as we want, to see the creation of capacity to serve these populations, you have to show that um, there's a certain uh, size of the population. And, and this is a huge problem that we have is that, um, even if say, um, I was working with a, say, for instance, I had a a case, it was a, a young black mother with cerebral palsy, who was a walking cane user in Georgia, and they had just provided nothing for her. And she luckily had a really good counsel that came in then and started shaking things up. Um, and they were trying to prevent the move to the termination of parental rights stage, um, saying she hasn't received services. She needs to receive services. All that she was receiving was an, an older white social worker who would bring her child to her home from the foster parent's home. And they were foster adopt parents. They wanted to adopt this child. And the social worker would sit and play with the child at the house in front of the mom, really did not even involve mom. Um, and, you know, so we go back to court and, and you know, really, you know, this attorney did a great job of zealously representing this, this mother and child. And the court agreed with us and um, even let me testify in a very unique move um, uh, regarding the, the law which is, you know, not usually something that I would be allowed to testify about under a, a very old Georgia law, something to do with a bank robbery, I think. And um, they, but um, the 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 state ended up saying, okay, uh, we agree, Your Honor. You're saying that we need to provide services, but those services don't exist in our county, and this isn't California. This isn't the Bay Area. We don't have this, and you can't order us to provide things we don't have. And that argument is made successfully all over. So it becomes this round robin thing of, you know, um, parents with disabilities lose their kids all the time in court. People aren't giving them services. Nobody understands these cases. So the services are not developed. We have excellent models and things like domestic violence, where there's the VAWA Act, the Violence Against Women's Act in the United States, because domestic violence impacts children and because the system needs to be educated on it. There are summer academies for social workers offered 
year after year after year to educate them on this issue. And there are um, entities that have sprung up uh, to provide counseling for families where domestic violence is an issue that are funded by the um, child welfare systems because they understand it's an issue. So they're trained on it all the time, right? Um, if you fund it, they will come. If you start funding for um, parenting evaluations that are best practice, if you start funding for people to learn peer-reviewed intervention, like Maurice Feldman's interventions for parents with intellectual disability, some of the interventions out of Canada and the East Coast around um, parents with mental health involvement, um, things that were developed at places like Through the Looking Glass of occupational therapists trained to work with parents with physical disabilities and sensory disabilities, blindness, deafness, um, then you know, if you fund those things, people will develop that. They'll take those trainings. They'll learn that methodology. They'll start providing the service, but we, we haven't gotten there yet. We really haven't. Yeah. There's a lot, um, there's a lot of steps to be taken on that road, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say that, you know, in, in 2012, the National Council of Disability came to us and asked us to write um, uh, a report for them. They advise uh, the, in the United States, National Council on Disability is an independent entity that advises the executive, the president and, and Congress on issues of importance to disabled people in the community nationally. At the time, Ari Fleischman um, was on uh, NCD, and Ari and I had worked around parents with autism and, and uh, custody issues. He began the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network um, as a very young person. He was, he was um, really sort of prodigious in his uh, work around that, very young. And, um, you know, we really felt uh, that we needed a report coming out of NCD to bring this to, to the attention at the national level. And so um, it was edited by Robin Powell and myself and um, Dr. Uh, Paul Preston and um, a number of other people contributed um, chapters to this. Um, I, I think I, I probably did the majority of the framing of issues for that. Um, and we included this whole history as well as what was happening now, special issues in the Native community, um, issues of reproductive technology and access, um, looking at best practices nationally and internationally, talked to many of folks like you and others, Australia and all over, um, and, and your recommendations, of course. So it was really 2012 when that was published that a lot of this work in America began on a national level, being framed in as an issue and a population to talk about parents with disabilities. And we're only right now at 10 years since then, right? So um, I wouldn't expect to see that, you know, nationwide we have amazing services available, but I'm disconcerted by the lack of progress. Um, you know, we've known that these things are needed, been making these arguments now for 10 years. And, and I really don't know of any child welfare systems uh, that are, are building these resources in their community as a matter of compliance with the law. Um, I did participate, I've, I've acted as a litigation consultant for the Department of Justice um, Civil Rights Division uh, in my past. And one of the things that I worked with them on was um, looking at, uh, they, they had a, a matter opened with the state of Massachusetts around their child welfare system and treatment of parents with disabilities. 
And it stemmed from the Gordon case, which was a case of a mom with intellectual disability that had her child removed. Um, and ultimately it was determined that had been in violation of the ADA and Section 504. And after that case in 2015, the Department of Justice issued guidelines saying the ADA applies to child welfare proceedings and it applies all the way through termination of parental rights. That had been a matter of, we had split circuits um, on that issue. Um, and the Department of Justice in America has what we call Chevron deference, meaning they have um, authority to interpret, ultimately they're the entity that interprets the ADA. And so to have them finally say, yes, it applies, it applies at all stages, was huge. And they then um, brought uh, an investigation to the whole state of Massachusetts after the Gordon case. Um, that finally uh, settled in 2020 and it's landmark. It's the first state where there's a settlement saying we violated the rights of disabled parents in our system and we will remediate um, our system statewide under the direction uh, agreement, this agreement with the Department of Justice. So I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll see developments in Massachusetts around creating these services providing training for social workers, um, public defenders, county councils, uh, dependency court judges, all of the people who are stakeholders, professional stakeholders in these systems. This, listeners, is where the first part of my conversation with Ella Callow ends. But there's much more ahead. In our next episode, we'll discuss the intersection of disability, poverty, and First Nations rights. We also talk about the use of IQ in custody battles, the pseudoscience around it, and how it is being misused. I hope you'll tune in. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.